This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. A Russian invasion of Ukraine now appears more likely, so what's the best course of action for the U.S.? How has NATO amped up the stakes of this conflict? Will Ruger is the new president of the American Institute for Economic Research. He and Cato Institute senior fellow Doug Bandau discuss what's likely and what's diplomatically possible in the current standoff at the Russian-Ukraine border. Whenever I watch two countries that are having a disagreement uh, about something, uh, how they line up and make decisions and bring themselves really very close to the brink of war, you know, I have to wonder, uh, and I think a lot of people do, how could this have been avoided? And how could we have not ended up at this particular point? The United States does it a lot. Whenever I hear the words no-fly zone come out of somebody's mouth, I always think that, uh, you know, much worse things are a lot closer than they otherwise would be. So, uh, Doug, uh, I'll start with you. How did we get here? Well, this goes back to the end of the Cold War. And we should start by noting that Vladimir Putin is not a nice man. I mean, this is a dictatorship. He plays rough. What he's threatening Ukraine with is wrong. Uh, it would be tragic and awful and criminal if he went and attacked Ukraine. Nevertheless, we should understand that we believe very strongly we won the Cold War and we treated Russia as a defeated power. Uh, declassified documents tell us that a lot of assurances were made to both Gorbachev and Yeltsin and the people around them that NATO would not expand. We ignored that. Uh, the Clinton administration moved very strongly ahead. You know, the Russians, to some degree, were upset but accepted they couldn't do much about it. But then we did a number of other things. We dismantled Serbia, a historic interest of theirs. Uh, World War I, uh, in many ways, came about because the Russians were prepared to defend Serbia as, as a fellow Slavic nation. There were color revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine. And then in 2014, with basically the U.S. supporting a street putsch against an elected president, corrupt, but nevertheless elected, who was relatively pro-Russian, you know, that uh, the Russians viewed all of this in a very negative way as threatening and the idea of bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO as the culmination of that. Any step, I think, along the way, we could have halted that. And if we'd taken a somewhat different course, been more accommodating to the Russians, acknowledged their security concerns, we wouldn't be at this stage. We didn't. And, and that's where it's put us. And we're dealing with a power that takes that very badly, somebody who's willing to use military power very roughly. And unfortunately, we may very well get a war in Europe, which we won't be directly involved in, but will have catastrophic consequences. Will? Yeah, I mean, a big part of this, like Doug said, is about Russian security fears. Uh, and while Russia and Putin's position may not be justified, uh, it is certainly understandable. Uh, you know, so the Russians uh, basically would ha have the same fear that we would have, for example, if China wanted to conclude an alliance with Mexico and Mexico was a willing partner because for whatever reason it wanted to be closer or embedded within a Chinese orb. Uh, we wouldn't stand for that. So this argument that's frequently made about how uh, sovereign nations be, have to be allowed to choose their own foreign policy is something that is a messaging point, not a principle of international relations that anyone believes, including the United States. We wouldn't tolerate it if China or Russia wanted to have an alliance with, say, Canada or Mexico, or uh, 
if you have a situation like you did with the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which uh, a, a foreign power wanted to, uh, you know, put what we consider to be dangerous, you know, military installation in a country, uh, in what we consider to be our sphere of influence. So this is really a lot about the kind of traditional security fears that drive international relations and have historically. And so it's not anomalous. And it's not, I don't think, uh, particular to Putin. I think this relates to Russia's security fears and interests writ large. All right. On the role of NATO here, uh, it doesn't seem that Ukraine's security is enhanced just by virtue of the fact that NATO even exists. NATO has essentially no relevance to Ukraine at the moment in terms of defense other than actually endangering it. That is, the desire to join NATO is what is animating Russian uh, policy right now. But no one in NATO has the slightest interest in actually entering into a war with Russia to defend Ukraine. Despite the fact that Ukraine gets constant reassurances from the U.S., from the general secretary of NATO, you know, from others in NATO, that everyone wants them to join when they're able. In fact, none of them are prepared to defend NATO. And NATO itself, most NATO members don't have terribly functional militaries that could actually show up in Ukraine to defend them. And polling tells us that the people in most European countries have no interest in going to war, even for fellow NATO members, let alone ones outside. What they all say is they expect America would show up and defend them. But Americans have no greater interest in defending Ukraine than does NATO. Will, uh, you've made note of the fact that the United States needs to stay out of this and uh, made some arguments about why that is. What's the what's the most uh, salient point for U.S. policymakers to keep in mind when uh, making a decision about what, if anything, the U.S. will provide in assistance to Ukraine? Well, you've heard a lot lately about the United States needing a foreign policy for the American people or a foreign policy for the middle class, right? This is a case in which Ukraine matters not at all to either the American people or that smaller group of the American middle class, right? Americans will not be made safer with Ukraine being part of NATO or the United States going to war to protect Ukrainian sovereignty. It's an unfortunate situation for the Ukrainians. They're in a bad neighborhood, and I feel terrible that they could be the subject of Russian aggression. But the fact is, is that Americans won't feel it either way, right? We won the Cold War with Ukraine being part of the Soviet Union. Uh, our prosperity does not depend on Ukraine's uh, sovereignty, uh, right? Uh, it's a very small actor in the global economy. Uh, it's a very small part of American trade. Uh, and and frankly, uh, you know, we wouldn't feel the pinch at all. And again, so it's just not in our interests in terms of our safety or our economic prosperity. And it's not a case in which there's a seamless web of interests, right? If Ukraine uh, were invaded by Russia, it would be terrible for Ukraine, but that wouldn't mean necessarily that this would threaten our key allies like Germany, France, or or would threaten us, right? There's a the seam has. Uh, there are seams in this uh, kind of uh, fabric of the international world. And I think that that Russia doesn't have an interest, for example, in compromising Western Europe. This is a, a lot about Ukraine and Ukraine's ambitions to be embedded more deeply into the Western security environment. What of the 
assertion or suggestion or int- intimation that uh, the that Ukraine has made that perhaps we will not seek NATO membership in order to bring this to an end. Yeah, this was an interesting possible trial balloon because it looked like it got walked back uh, in the same interview with the BBC, uh, if that's what you're referencing. Uh, but if it were a trial balloon, it would be great because what we have is a situation in which the balance of interests and the balance of power uh, are being made more transparent, uh, right? So you have the Russian buildup, you have the response of the West, including the United States, essentially saying that we're not going to put troops in uh, into a conflict like this. And even Biden administration saying they wouldn't use troops to evacuate Americans during a, a conflict. So what you're seeing again is that balance of wills, balance of power playing out making it more transparent, which should lead to people understanding what the costs and benefits are. And then the question is, who flinches or who blinks based on that? And I think the the realistic solution, given everything we've seen play out and assuming that the Russians would actually invade and cause great harm to Ukraine, is that the Ukrainians should flinch, right? They should want to get the best deal they can get to avert war especially since, as Doug talked about, the West isn't riding to the rescue. And so that would mean something like what uh, happened with Austria or Finland during the Cold War. Those aren't exact parallels, but some way in which Ukraine credibly commits to not seeking NATO membership and the and, and NATO countries uh, can make a credible commitment that as soon as the Russians stand down, it's not going to be back to, to the usual. And that's going to take something beyond just saying, no NATO membership. It's going to take commitments about future military to military relationships, about arms, uh, about the Ukrainian constitution. Although again, that would be a parchment barrier. So something more than that is going to be necessary. I mean, the advantage is this at least would be a starting point for serious negotiations. In essence, the West has told Putin, we don't care about your major concerns. We'll talk about other stuff but not what seems to be really animating your policy. And it requires the Ukrainians to recognize, in effect, the Europeans and the U.S. are perfectly happy to have them fight to the last Ukrainian against Russia. We'll send them some weapons. We'll cheer. You know, we'll talk about how they're defending democracy, but we won't actually do anything to help them. So the challenge here is for the Ukrainians to recognize that they are basically being played. You know, that uh, they may hope for a Western rescue, it won't come. If they understand there's no rescue at the end of the rainbow, then, as Will indicated, they need to consider what is ultimately in their interest. It's a rough accommodation. We wouldn't want to have to make it, but it also can be temporary. Finland and Austria are now perfectly free of foreign intervention or, uh, you know, influence, and they are free market societies, democratic societies. Ukraine might be able to look for that as well. Russia, I don't think, will stay the way it is forever, but this is a short-term way to stay out of a war. One of the advantages that uh, Vladimir Putin appears to have is that Ukraine seems fairly corrupt, and uh, a lot of money that otherwise might have been spent on their own defense hasn't. Uh, I spoke with Garrett Wood, who's an economic researcher, on uh, the issue of crowdsourcing small-scale defense uh, in Ukraine that has had uh, some, uh, he argues, positive results. But, you know, what is the state of Ukraine's positioning that puts them at an advantage or disadvantage? 
Yeah, I, I don't think we should draw a kind of equivalency between the Ukrainian government and Putin's government in Russia. Uh, I, I think, you know, I've been to Kiev. I, I, would, I would rather live under the current Ukrainian government than under the current Russian government. That being said, we have to be careful about assuming that uh, Ukraine is, you know, a kind of a perfect liberal democracy uh, that shares every value that uh, that we do, or that uh, our our allies in NATO do. I mean, this is a country that has great corruption problems. Uh, this is a country that is quite oligarchic uh, in terms of the powers that really, I think, drive Ukrainian politics. Uh, and we can't forget that there are some groups inside Ukraine that are pretty nasty, especially when it comes to the liberal values that the Cato Institute believes in. Uh, and that Americans, I think, believe in. Um, uh, there's something called the Azov Battalion, uh, which uh, is a, a, is a, uh, a reactionary, even neo-fascist organization. Uh, and uh, so we, we have to understand, and, and this is kind of a problem consistently of American foreign policy, of looking things through a, a Manichaean uh, vision, right, of, of uh, just black and white. And we saw that in Syria, where we were supporting some pretty nasty folks as well, uh, and we had tried to frame that in terms of a Manichaean struggle uh, when it wasn't in fact. And, and that's the problem of American foreign policy writ large is that it tries to play itself out as, as like a, a 1980s, uh, you know, kind of B Hollywood movie, right? Uh, uh, Red Dawn or <laughs> Rambo, right? The good and the bad, as opposed to the fact that international politics is messy relationships are messy, states have different values and, and different um, kind of um, uh, internal struggles themselves. And even in the case of, of, of Ukraine, uh, some compromises that they've, they believe they've had to make in order to, to attempt a defensible defense. To what extent has the U.S. made this situation worse? Because I, I, can, I know that the U.S. has ways and methods of uh, setting up people who certainly would like to invade another country to put them in a box, essentially, uh, and make it very difficult to take an action that the U.S. doesn't want them to take. And sometimes that means more fighting than less. Well, it's certainly evident that the U.S. has been playing mind games in terms of uh, you know, predicting the Russians are going in. And they've admitted as much that uh, you know all along they've been telling us it's imminent, it's close, the troops are there, and it appears they they're hoping to for you know in theory at least foreclose some options for the Russians, make it hard for the Russians to take some of these steps. On the other hand, you know playing those games raises tensions. Uh, it uh, you know, we're seeing kind of in Ukraine today. They haven't hit panic yet, but airlines are some are no longer flying in. You know embassies are sending folks home. If you want to do business in Ukraine, this it's very difficult at the moment. Who wants to fly in to do a contract? You know conferences are being canceled. I was supposed to be attending one in a, a couple of months, and that one's going down. You know no one can get insurance. You know, so raising those tensions, and at some point you're inflaming the situation, and you're encouraged telling the Russians they better act soon. You're making it harder potentially within Ukraine for moderate voices to be able to step back and say maybe there's something we can do to stop this. You know, we don't want this to be the onrushing train that uh, is on its way and you can't stop it. We really want to have some checkpoints along the way where you could get people to you know, hold off, you know, calm down. 
what can we do here that everyone can live with? And to me, that's the ultimate issue here. If the Ukrainians can come up with a solution where they internally remain free, they set their own political system, they can trade with the West, but what they promise not to do is play international politics and military relations with the West, you know, that certainly looks a lot better than a Russian invasion, especially one that wants to go to Kiev, that wants to you know, take over, if not the whole country, half of it. Well, I mean, the, the casualties, the horror, the damage would be extraordinary there. And the U.S. has also consistently encouraged the Ukrainians to believe they're going to be in NATO. Lloyd Austin went over there last October. The Pentagon put out you know, a press release saying while he's there in Kyiv, he's going to be telling them that we are looking forward to them you know, making the reforms necessary that will bring them into NATO. Well, you can see why they grasp on that as being their ultimate goal and their ultimate protection. And it's not real. You know, it's not happening. So I think the U.S. plus played a very serious role over time in making this worth. And fundamentally, I think Will's point is really important. The U.S. would not accept the behavior by Russia or China that we have done towards the Russians. It doesn't justify what they're doing. But again, understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it is critical to trying to get out of this without a conflict. I think one thing that's been underrated, too, is how some of the friends of Ukraine, uh, and I count myself among them as someone who would like to see the Ukrainians prosper and be more free, but how some of the friends of Ukraine ha have, have actually, I think, harmed uh, the Ukrainians. Because I think, as Doug talked about, they've raised their expectations. Um, and that, that can lead to uh, reckless driving, as, as Barry Posen at MIT talks about, when it comes to uh, kind of pre-alliance uh, or even alliance relationships. And we saw that in Georgia uh, in the last decade where the same type of thing happened. And so I would counsel the friends of Ukraine to ratchet down some of the rhetoric about the future of US or NATO relationships with Ukraine uh, because they could get this really uh, you know, unintended worst case scenario. And I would think that they would, you should try to get uh, something a little bit more realistic, given the geopolitics of that region, which would be a situation in which Ukraine could become something akin to what Austria and Finland were during the Cold War. And again, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat, so it's not going to be exactly like that, but something that rhymes with that type of solution. Will Ruger is the new president of the American Institute for Economic Research. He was President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to Afghanistan. Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>